Hey everybody, uh, you might remember from our last episode we'd originally scheduled our Panama episode for today, but after the release of the Nauru files, which was a breaking news story this week, we thought that this episode would give a good background on a country that you might be reading a lot about in the near future. Uh, this episode was recorded before the files were released, but we do discuss the issues that were highlighted in those reports. Also, from here on out, we're moving to a weekly release, so check your podcast feed every Monday for a brand new place to explore. Uh, enjoy this episode, and we'll see you guys next week. I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Brought to you by three curious amateurs in an internet-powered balloon, this is a podcast dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, and I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Joe Byrne, broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland. And I'm Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about Nauru, a tiny potato-shaped island in the central Pacific around 3,000 kilometers east of Australia. The island has its own coral reef and white sand beaches and was once known as Pleasant Island. Nauru is the third smallest state by area in the world, only behind Vatican City and Monaco, and enjoyed a brief period as one of the richest per capita nations in the world in the 1960s. It's a fascinating rags to riches to rags story with quite a few uh, large characters. Joe, would you like to tell us a little bit about the early days of Nauru? Nauru has a a pretty unknown history before Europeans got there, which is a is a bit of a pity because I'm sure it's fascinating. It's, it's essentially your your um your postcard tropical paradise. Uh, it was called Pleasant Island by the first man to, to the first Western man to discover it, uh, called Captain John Fern, um because of its lush vegetation, coconut trees surrounded by a coral reef, and the people on it have been there for a long, long time. No one's really sure that probably thousands of years. They're thought to have been castaways from other Pacific islands. Their ethnicity is kind of related to Polynesians and, and Micronesians and Melanesians and other Pacific Islanders. Um, and as I say, they, they, they kind of had a, a relatively simple existence until uh, Europeans got involved, which is a traditional story throughout the world. Um, they are one of the few places that in, in early times uh, did, did aquaculture, where they farmed fish. Um, in prehistory, which is kind of cool, I think. So they would capture the young fish from the surf uh, of the milkfish um, species and would bring them into the inland lagoons, kind of salty lagoons, and then raise them up into food, um, which is is pretty spectacular. Uh, And that continued up until the 20s. um, uh, Sorry, up until the 40s. uh, But we'll come to that later. Um, But yeah, pretty much from... From there on, from from um, Nauru's discovery by Europeans, things started changing. Um, so, it was seventeen ninety eight, they had the first contact with uh, with Europeans uh, as as Europeans started exploring the the Pacific region, uh, and then in from the eighteen thirties to the eighteen eighties, 
you started getting uh, escaped convicts, uh, deserters from whaling ships, and uh, beachcombers, who were people who kind of collect flotsam and jetsam and trade it, started coming and living in the island and becoming part of the community. Um, and what they introduced was uh, spirits, like rum and gin, and also uh, firearms, uh, which really wasn't a welcome addition to, to island life. Uh, they did have kind of palm wine on the island beforehand, but but I think spirits were a, a, an unwelcome uh, addition to, to the lifestyle, as I say. Um, the Nauru flag, Luke, you, you might describe that for us. As blue with a, a black stripe and a, a 12-pointed star, is that correct? That, that's pretty much it. Yeah, so the, the stripe is the equator because they're literally right on it. And then the twelve-pointed star represents the twelve tribes of Nauru who lived around the coast, um, because pretty much the coast is the fertile plain. Uh, the island's been described as being sort of shaped like a hat, so the the plain, the brim around the outside is where you can do a little bit of growing of things, and then the central section is sort of a rocky interior, um, now qu- quite heavily uh, mined. Quite low-lying, um, though, in general, isn't that, isn't that right? Low-lying in general, yeah. And um, yeah, so it's it's one of these countries that's not too keen on climate change for that reason. Um, yeah, I've heard yeah. something about that, yeah. that uh, they're, They were quite vocal in uh, climate change talks quite recently, I believe. And took a reasonably prominent role. Um, and But the 12-pointed star on the flag represents the 12 traditional tribes uh, of the island, and their tribes are matrilineal. So your membership of a tribe came from your mother, which is quite interesting. So women have always held more power um, than you might expect in a in a, a pre-colonial culture, um, where men took political roles, but the women were sort of the heads of the family. Um, so in 1878, this horrible civil war broke out called the Tribal Civil War. And it was a 10-year-long war between all the tribes. And... The beginning of it is one of these kind of, it'd be funny if it weren't so tragic stories where, where there was a wedding feast, someone had a disagreement about some etiquette point, like, I don't know, someone didn't know how to bow properly or, or they insulted someone. Um, and this is normally how rows began traditionally on the island, but as it, the two new features of, of island life, the spirits and the firearms, meant that this escalated very quickly. Somebody shot a young chief by mistake, probably, but the etiquette rules decreed that this had to be, you know, this had to be avenged. And then everyone had guns for the first time in their history. So it, it just became a 10-year-long bloodbath between everyone. But I, I might be misremembering this from, from my little bit of research, but I... I think a third or a half of the population ended up dead in the, as a, in the course of this war. It was a, an incredible proportion of, of quite a small population, to be fair. What kind um, of numbers are we talking about, Joe? I think we're talking about less than a thousand people. But still, m- many hundreds of them were killed in the course of this war. And when the British and the Germans divided up the Pacific arbitrarily between them, just drew a line on a map, Nauru was in the German half. Uh, this would have been in the 1880s or so. So when Germans came to visit the island, they got the impression that no one actually wanted to be fighting anymore, but nobody trusted anyone. 
you know, if I put away my guns, they'll just come and kill me. And everyone thought the same. So you had this stalemate of just reprisal killings that no one wanted to happen. But um, nobody was arbitrating any kind of, uh, no. you know, peace agreement. Nobody was, no one was in a position to. So the Germans decided that the uh, solution was for, for them to annex the island. And um, they came in and they uh, threatened the people that they would execute all their chiefs if they didn't hand in all their weapons by, by midnight the next day. And the war ended. And so Nauru's colonial history kind of begins at that point. Um, a king was appointed and, and things uh, things carried on like that. Now, culturally, that didn't have a huge impact on society. What really did was um, the arrival of Christian missionaries in 1899. That was when the island really started to change culturally. And there was a... There was sort of island religions on like on Nauru before that point, was there? There were, but but given they were they weren't a writing people, and their encounters with Western people have been so brief and recent, I, th- there isn't a huge amount I could find out about the pre-existing religions other than kind of generic. You know, they they would sacrifice some of the early harvest to, of of fish to please the spirits, and there seems to have been some. Um, some creation myth about these two rocks up in the the central pla- the central raised plain, which is called Topside, and there were two kind of intersecting rocks which were meant to be two spirits that came together from the west and the east, um. But they're now long gone. Uh, Christianity completely replaced these religions, so there's almost no remnants of of traditional religion, uh, in place. I, I did were... read a um, I did read an account of somebody. Very much backing up what you're saying, Joe, that, that there was uh, a lot of traditional kind of dances and things like that, uh, similar to, along the lines of, you know, uh, either blessing the harvest or being thankful for a good harvest, things like that. But that so many generations uh, have passed since those were uh, a common uh, a common cultural uh, touchstone that no one can really talk about them with any, uh, any authority, that these are just kind of vague memories of memories at this point. Yeah. Uh, which is a, which is a pity, but that that is what happens. That's why writing is such a powerful tool because it allows you to look back into history, even if we've forgotten it in the present. Um, but yeah, missionaries were exceptionally successful, and, and they were sought after as well. They were seen as a kind of a, a status symbol almost. Uh, and the king who wanted to end the civil war was asking the Germans to send missionaries to end it rather than soldiers, because he thought, you know, were these missionaries from Germany? They though? would have been from. The German sphere of influence, some of them were German. Um, I, I don't know the details. There were a limited amount of them. But there was definitely a Congregationalist, so a Protestant minister, and there was also Catholics. And and that kind of matches how, how it's divided up today. About a third of Nauruans are Catholic and about two-thirds are various kinds of Protestant. And that brings us up to around about 1900, where there was a pretty significant discovery on the island. Yeah. So... Um, this is one of these things that sounds good at first. At first, um, yes. So in 1901, Sir Albert Ellis, who was a, a geologist working in the kind of Oceania, Australia, New Zealand region, um, he noticed a, a doorstop in the office he was working in. It was a big rock uh, from Nauru. And he, he looked at it and went, that looks like a lot of phosphate is in that rock. Uh, and did some tests and that was a light bulb but, moment. yeah that's a light bulb moment that's how it's it's recorded 
And um, he was convinced that the island this came from would be very rich in phosphate. And phosphate is an important um, an important chemical for uh, fertilizers. It's a, it's a limiting a limiting uh, feature of a lot of um, of a lot of agriculture because phosphate uh, phosphorus is hard to get from the environment, and phosphate is one of the few kind of sources of it. Um, and it can kind of come from either you know guano and and bird droppings and bat droppings and stuff, or it can be um, acquired from from rock sources where ancient uh, ancient droppings and ancient bones have been turned into rock. And Nauru and the nearby its nearby neighbour Ocean Island are both essentially big lumps of phosphate rock. And we should, I, I think, take a second just to reiterate again, Joe, like just how isolated this place is. I mean, it's only yeah, it's only just over eight square miles, just a, a tiny three thousand kilometers speck north of, of Australia, uh, and it, it is the most remote place, the smallest island nation in the world. Um, it is insignificant, and would not have featured in world affairs at all, only for the fact that its central plain is teeming with this very valuable resource. And it was considered the best source in the world of this for most of the 20th century. So now we've got floods of people flocking to this tiny, tiny speck of an island uh, in the but, middle of the Pacific to uh, get hold of the phosphate, presumably. The interesting thing is, is it not that many people were required. Now, one interesting feature of the phosphate extraction process, so that didn't start until 1907. There was a bit of setup time. Um, and a kind of bit of wrangling over who had the right to the rights to mine it, but eventually a a German British consortium um, began work on on extracting this phosphate. Uh, but the the Naurans didn't really have very much interest in working in the mines. Uh, they kind of were happy to get on with their lives, so they ended up bringing in uh, foreign labor, Chinese laborers, and, and other Pacific Islanders, and it was all overseen by Westerners. Because that's um, racism, the way things are. <laughs> because of historical because racism. Because racism, yeah. Yes. Yeah, because, because racism. Um, so yeah, they, they, they started mining quite heavily. You can't land on the island because it's surrounded by a ring of coral spikes and pinnacles. So you have, they have quite complex ways of getting from, from the island out to the boats. But this really is why at the end of World War One, the Australians occupied the island pushing the Germans out because the Germans obviously lost World War I. Um, the League of Nations gave a mandate to the British Empire, which was the UK, New Zealand and Australia, to sort of administer the region. Um, and they set up the British Phosphate Commission to do that. So all, the, all, all international interest in the place was about getting the phosphate out of it. And that's kind of defined its economy for the 20th century. In, in 1942, the Japanese... Having entered the war, uh, they they occupied the island, and that had a as they did many places around, uh, like all over the Pacific. Yes, as we know. Yeah, they were occupying pretty much all the islands, and this was this was the last in a long chain, um, and it was brutal. Uh, it was not a good time for Nauru. Not that many periods of its history have been particularly rosy, um, but. In, in advance of the invasion, they knew the invasion was coming. Australia evacuated all the Westerners and the Chinese and, and wow. left the Narrans behind. And left the natives. Uh, they, they didn't get all the Chinese because they didn't have enough room. They were going to come back. Um, 
yeah, and then the Japanese came. And anyone who knows anything about World War Two in, in that region will know that the Japanese opinion of the Chinese was very low. Uh, they had a quite racial idea, uh, a system of viewing the world, and, and the Chinese were at the bottom. Um, so yeah, uh, just to, I suppose, zip through this this cheerful period of, of their history. So um, it was all, so five Australians remained behind, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Chalmers, the, the leader of the administrator of the island, was left behind, and two priests were also there with, with the local people, with the Naurans. Uh, who numbered about 3,000 at the time. Um, and the the Australians were all executed after a, a, an American bombing raid. And this is one of the big war crimes uh, that was, was prosecuted by a military tribunal after the war. Executed uh, they, by the Japanese? They, yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, one of the a lieutenant in the Japanese army after an American bombing just took out these interned Australians and, and, and beheaded them, according to one report, with a sword. Like, it was it was pretty grim. And he, he, he was eventually, uh, the, the lieutenant was eventually hanged for that after the war, as a war criminal. Um, and the Japanese then, uh, they exiled the local people. There was too many. They, they brought in a massive garrison and they couldn't feed everyone. So they brought the lo- They sent the locals off to what's now Micronesia, a place called Truk, and they all like there was there was uh, starvation, there was overworking. It was a it was a dark dark period, and the only positive thing to come out of it by any measure is that the by forced labor of both the locals and the Chinese, they they built an airstrip which is now foundation of the modern airport which is the only way in and out of the island in the, in the current age so the only slight glimmer of anything vaguely good that comes out of this this period is that you can now get there what uh, happened to the island in in you know at the end of the war eventually the australians liber- liberated it and they were welcomed and the people were eventually though with great delay the people were brought back from from where they've been exiled to um and only about half of the twelve hundred who'd been exiled came back. So this, so that's another decimation essentially yeah. to uh, their population once again. And we we haven't even mentioned the uh, influenza epidemic, which happened between the two wars. I believe. Sure, and again, like they didn't have immunity to it because flu is a is a disease acquired from living in proximity with animals that they didn't have. But uh, I just like to briefly tell you about it, like. In 1932, they'd celebrated Angham Day, which was the day they got over 1,500 people in the native population. And that number dropped below that again. So that had been considered the kind of number that you needed to keep your race alive. And it took till 1949 before they got back up to 1,500 again. So it was a a grim time that kind of changed their opinions of their colonial protectors who had abandoned them. Well, really, they haven't. Uh, I mean, as as we've just heard, like they haven't had a great time of of it no. at all since since they came into contact with the Western world, basically. So, so this kind of st- steeled their resolve to um to become an independent nation, I suppose. And that's what we'll be talking about next: the push for Nauru's independence right after this break. Oh 
So that brings us up to around 1968 when Nauru was really, really pushing for independence. I, I think you have something on that, Mark? Um, not specifically, just that their first president was a man by the name of, of fantastic name, Hammer de Robert. Um, and Hammer, Hammer de Robert was the grandson of, uh, of one of the traditional chiefs of the 12 tribes. And he had served in the, uh, the administration uh, of Nauru and then eventually became uh, their first president and was essentially president on and off between 1968 and 1989 continuously with, with very little interruption. I think there was a, a few you know, months or, or years out of that that he wasn't, but in general, he was president for um, 20 plus years uh, and he died in, in 1992. Um, so very much the man that, that sort of brought them out of colonization and into into independence, I suppose. Exactly. And yeah, and, yeah. And he, he he would have led these bodies that existed before independence and negotiated for it. So he kind of was a transition point. And and the seventies and eighties, I mean, to to his credit, are what one might describe as as the golden age of Nauru. Um in in the it's, context it's of what yeah, yeah in, in the context of what came after and as a result of those, those and before, years. yeah, and before, uh, this this is the peak. So, essentially, the the ownership of the uh, the phosphate deposits passed from uh, whatever consortium was 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 mining them to the people of Nauru to the government, and they administered it from then on. And the price, I believe, was was going up all the time. So you got a bunch of people or the native people who've just inherited these massive phosphate deposits and have now have complete control over it, over it themselves. Is that right? Yes, and they established something that, that is now quite common, uh, but I don't think was so much at the time. I mean, uh, Norway and Qatar and countries like that that have uh, uh, huge amounts of natural resources do this. They establish a wealth trust for the state. Uh, and it, it acts essentially like an investment company going out and uh, buying investments all around the world, trying to both uh, solidify the wealth, but also trying to grow it uh, via the same kind of investment uh, economics that, that everybody else uses. So almost like a trust fund for the for the country, basically. Exactly that. Uh, and they have uh, their guys, essentially the government, uh, administering it, deciding what to invest in, what not to invest in. And the main thing they invested in was uh, international real estate. They invested all over the world, London and uh, uh, New Zealand and Australia. Uh, in in particular, there was uh, Nauru House in Melbourne, which was uh, briefly uh, to be the tallest building in Australia and also the tallest building in Melbourne. They actually uh, knocked down some uh, preserved buildings to build that particular skyscraper. Um, and this was, as I say, this was the, the golden age of, of, of Nauru. They were known as the... Can I just... Oh, yes, go on. Can I point out at this point that um, there was an awareness, and we, we possibly haven't we haven't emphasised this enough, there was an awareness that the phosphate was not limitless. Uh, mm. And that was why yes. these decisions were made. Like, at, 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 We're at a point now where, where the initial phosphate reserves are essentially gone and the centre of the island is hollowed out and just left as spikes of, uh, spikes of, of rock uh, that were left behind. So... 30, 40 years ago, there was an awareness that this was coming, which yeah, is why there yeah, was some efforts. I think to... that's important to know, yeah, because the, the, and I think something that we also haven't touched on is that the rest of the industry in, on Nauru is, is there, there basically isn't any, there isn't really any, any industry aside from the phosphate. So I think it's important to say, as you, as you point out, Joe, that the government force, like foresaw this issue and were doing their best to try and 
effectively set up a trust fund for the company yeah. where people could live off the profits of this phosphate for as long a time as, as was humanly possible. And, and as a result, in the 70s, they were the richest pe- people in the world, weren't they? Per they did become briefly. the richest per capita country in the world briefly, yes, I believe in the, in the mid-70s. So there was a very large welfare state, free education, free healthcare, everything was golden for a very short yep. window. The golden age of Nauru. Um, so you're, you're, you're completely correct. All of that's true. The, there, there was an underlying issue, though. I mean, as it turned out, the administration or the, I guess, maybe more so the style of the administration, not any specific one thing they were doing was, was wrong. They were investing and, and so on. But um, they allowed their budgets to get completely out of control. Um, they paid for, you know, lavish trips all around the world. Uh, I read about a trip to the Bahamas to go golfing. Um, the Bahamas and Nauru are not, <laughs> geographically, they are not proximal. They are not close to each other. Um, and they, they, they do share an industry, though, the kind of tax haven stuff. Oh, sure, yeah. That's um, true. We'll, 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 we'll get, get to that, that later. We'll get, we'll get to that. But I guess my point is that Yes, they de- they developed uh, their real estate portfolio, but you can even see a little bit in the kinds of um, properties they were purchasing that there was an element of uh, uh, prestige and maybe you could say ego to to all of the investments they were making, uh, and that they weren't necessarily done strictly with them being an investment. They were done as much with them, you know, being seen as something that Nauru could be proud of. Symbols uh, of success, I suppose. Uh, exactly, exactly. So, as we've alluded to, um, the phosphate uh, reserves did not last forever. And as things were um, uh, getting wound down, I guess, in, in the early 90s, their budgets had only ever increased uh, and they found themselves uh, taking out loans from, at one point, General Electric. I think it was 40-something million. They took out a loan from them. Um, and they put up their real estate portfolio as collateral. Another very Which significant... Never a good idea. Yeah. Uh, another very significant investment they made, very famously, was in a West End musical called Leonardo the Musical, A Portrait of Love. Um, they, <laughs> their main financial advisor was a man by the name of Duke Minx, who was, uh, you know... Another great name. It is a it is a great name. <laughs> is he a, is he a duke or is that is that just his name? That's that's just his name. His his name was oh, cool. Duke Minx, uh, and he was I think. A, I believe the current president. His first name is Baron. Yeah, Baron. Baron I sort of was looking on Wikipedia to kind of go. Was is this an actual Baron? No, that's just his first name, Baron. It's just his first uh, name is Baron. So this yep. guy is Duke Minx. And w- w- could you just go back there, Mark? Um, Leonardo. Is this like uh, Leonardo da Vinci? Oh yes, or, sorry. <laughs> I, this is Leonardo da Vinci's love story. There, there, there's more. There's more to explain. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. So uh, Leonardo the musical, A Portrait of Love, was co-written by Duke Minx, former vice president of Citibank, who also happened to be the main financial advisor for the island of Nauru. Um, Excellent. He was he was playing music. Uh, he was a former. Uh, 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 band manager for some band in the 60s and he's playing some music for uh, a visiting Nauru government official who I their first name was Emu that's my only 
that's my only recollection of but I just to keep the keep the thing going of people associated with the island of Nauru have fantastic names so somebody fantastic by the name names, of yeah. yeah somebody by the name of Emu was listening to this music and asked you know what is it it's fantastic and then he let them know that they were uh, creating this musical called Leonardo the Musical a Portrait of Love uh, and the government of Nauru invested two million sterling um, into it. So you know, it would have been maybe a set of four or five, maybe even 10 million uh, Australian dollars. What year was it, this, Mark? 1993. 1993. 40 Nauruan people uh, were attending at the opening night in the Strand Theatre. Uh, it lasted for five weeks. Um, by the end of the first night, most of the audience had left. Uh, it has gone down as one of the most expensive and crushing uh, uh, defeats and losses in West End musical history. This is the most obvious example of the type of financial mismanagement. Uh, and to be sure, they were getting extremely bad advice, but perhaps they weren't necessarily thinking things through. It was, you know, big, splashy, lavish uh, West End, lots of glamour. They had been sold it on the basis that if it was successful, it would tour around the world, would provide income for years. Again, you know, good reasoning. But I mean, all three of us have have worked a little bit in theater and we know it's not something you get into for the money. Uh, it is it is a difficult business to get money out of. Um, not so, a traditional investment vehicle, we, have, we, we could say. So I guess that 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 is the best example of the the process by which Nauru went from uh, an extraordinarily wealthy nation to today, one of the countries with the uh, lowest GDP in the world. Uh, I found it, it's, it's in the bottom three or four. Statistics are very um, hard to come by with regards to Nauru because it's a very small country, very small administration. They don't really have the capacity to be constantly updating the facts and figures about their country. They have no, nor is there much good news to be spreading absolutely absolutely yeah, no it, so, it really is a kind of it's got it's got all the problems that every like i read an article on in, in a newspaper about nauru um where they basically said it is all the problems we're all going to have and it's testing them all and i believe now mark that the, it's its main its main source of income now is is actually from grants from australia and i guess we can we can now move on to another bleak uh period of of nauru's history which is why exactly it's getting money from funneled to it from australia so yes um th this is a good uh, uh I, it's a good point to move on to that i guess to, to explain nauru has you know only really the one natural resource and beyond that their main source of income their most marketable uh, uh trait is that they are themselves a sovereign country and therefore have a seat at the UN and have all the different trappings that come with being a country, including the ability, if they so choose, to recognize other territories, often with a great degree of political controversy, as themselves being sovereign countries. So some examples of that are they uh, recognized uh, the sovereignty of Taiwan. Very small list of countries uh, that, that do that. I believe there's only 20 or so that recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan over China. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that they then received $130 million from, in aid from China, and then they reversed their recognition of Taiwan. And interesting. Yes. Uh, in a and then a very, few years very, later, they went back to recognizing Taiwan again. Oh, did they? Well, 
maybe yeah and china got very, like the people's republic of china got rather annoyed at them which is shocking yeah i can i can imagine that another uh they, they also recognize kosovo and really interestingly they decided to recognize abkhazia and south ossetia which were the the result created as the result of the 2009 war between georgia and the Ukraine, sorry, uh, Georgia and, and Russia. Sorry, I said the Ukraine because it's so similar to what happened in the Ukraine subsequently. But uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia were recognized. And again, similarly, Russia transferred uh, $50 million in aid to Nauru as a result. So I, I don't say this in, in, in order to in any way uh, criticize Nauru. I'm just making the point that this has become a viable way for them to, to make money from the fact that they are themselves a country. This is something that is a, a marketable quality and that they can recognize or unrecognize uh, territories as they see fit. And they do so, you know, I think we can we can see with a, a strategic uh, uh, view of potentially where foreign aid might come from. The, their main, I guess, source of funding, as I mentioned, is, is from Australia, at least from what I could tell for the next year or the last couple of years. But uh, it's not for nothing. No, uh, and th- that's... It's, it's for a similar reason. The fact that Nauru is its own country and is not a part of Australia means that Australia has been able to use it as a sort of a, an immigrant Guantanamo, uh, something that is off of the mainland and is not necessarily strictly under the rules of the Australian government. Therefore, they have a, a great amount of plausible deniability, but whatever happens there. So they've established an immigration detention center. Um, in the early 2000s, there was a, a it was called the, the Tampa Affair. It was essentially a, a, a Norwegian cargo ship that picked up uh, 430-odd um, uh, immigrants who were, uh, their, their boat was being uh, capsized, and they put out a distress call. This Norwegian tanker picked them up, and there was a huge international argument about where they could go. Uh, the closest country, sorry, the closest uh, uh, landmass was Christmas Island, which is administered by Australia. And uh, the second closest was Indonesia. The Australian government preferred that they go to Indonesia, even though it was an extra six hours uh, sail away. And the tanker was only equipped to cater to 27 people, not the 438 who were on their decks. Uh, they eventually sailed towards Christmas Island and were boarded by the uh, Australian equivalent of the, of the SAS, their special forces, um, who tried to make the tanker turn around and go back to uh, Indonesia. But um, the, the captain uh, refused, and eventually the uh, immigrants were moved to Nauru and to... Uh, there's a similar uh, centre in Manus Island off the coast of Papua New Guinea. So the Australian Immigration Centre is a, a cause of huge controversy within Australia. I uh, tweeted uh, a request for, you know, any any trivia, interesting information to uh, a journalist that, that I'm connected with on Twitter. And I, I promptly went to sleep and woke up and I had a long uh, debate that I had been included on on, uh, on Twitter between somebody who's very pro-immigration control in Australia and somebody else who's making the point that there are a lot of allegations of human rights abuses uh, and just deeply unpleasant stuff happening at this immigration centre in Nauru. And, and the goal here is Australia doesn't want people arriving on boats to be settled in Australia. That's a policy they have now yes. since, I think, 2002? Uh, yes, since the Tampa affair. 
so it's called the Pacific Solution, which is quite a sinister sounding name. But the idea is to make it less attractive for people to come. Uh, and I think it's probably having that effect because it's not a great system. People in Nauru are not happy. Yeah, I I, I listened to a news report uh, from ABC in Australia that said that, uh, I think it was in 2012, uh, I think it was 40-odd um, asylum seekers came from Sri Lanka uh, to Nauru uh, or were you know, aiming to go to Australia but were, were sort of diverted to Nauru. And uh, Australia almost like there was almost a, a kind of candid acknowledgement that Australia believed that because the ongoing civil war in Sri Lanka at the time had actually ended by that point, uh, that they, these weren't actual asylum seekers. And they, again, this is allegedly sent them to Nauru to kind of test their resolve as to whether they would be willing to stay in these, uh, conditions that you alluded to earlier, Mark. And in fact, I think roughly 20 of them ended up leaving, uh, and going back to Sri Lanka, because the conditions were so unbearable. Uh, do you want to give us a brief overview, Mark, of like why there is so much controversy over the detention uh, center uh, on Nauru? Yeah, for sure. So um, the, the conditions are, are generally described as being pretty, pretty unpleasant. Uh, in 2013, there was a, a riot by uh, many of those on the island, sorry, many of those in the center. Uh, about uh, 125 immigrants were arrested and actually, if you look at that in the context of the population of the island of Nauru, which is about 10,000, 1% of the people on the island were arrested as a result of this riot. Um, another maybe illuminating or illustrating uh, element of this story was that 1,000 local men uh, armed with iron bars and machetes, these are the uh, local eyewitness accounts, turned up to help secure the compound and stop uh, the immigrants who were being processed from escaping and running around the island. So there's obviously, uh, I mean, it's, it's a huge, uh, something that the population of Nauru are very, very conscious of is that they have uh, people coming from essentially all over the world with very little documentation and are being housed and kept in their area. And I, I imagine that there's an, an enormous amount of uh, tension as a result of having this center there. Uh, there was a, a Somali woman by the name of uh, Abian who uh, was raped on the island, uh, became pregnant, allegedly, allegedly, and then was moved to Australia uh, to have the pregnancy terminated. Uh, and here the accounts... Um, diverge significantly, where the Australian government say that she was uh, very well catered to, translators, doctors, etc. Uh, her account says that the facilities are actually very poor, and uh, as soon as her lawyer attempted to uh, explore possibly a way that she might be able to stay in Australia, she was immediately put onto a chartered flight back to Nauru. Um, and I think this is, the, the allegation is that this is essentially because of the policy that, that you mentioned, Joe, that any immigrant who comes to Australian land via boat, they, they cannot really be taken in the same way. There's this uh, a stigma about that, that they, their processing needs to be done on Nauru. And generally, the, the, one of the results that they have is that they place them in, in Papua New Guinea, uh, Indonesia, places like this. They, the Australian government actually... Uh, um, 
uh, pays other governments to take some of these immigrants uh, into their own countries. So it is, it is an extraordinarily grim story, uh, and it's something that is, is very, very much animates the Australian public. Uh, obviously, there are those in Australia for whom uh, immigration is a very, very important issue, and they wish that, uh, you know, uh, to have a lot more control over who does or does not come into the country. Um, one other headline of Nauru uh, today, beyond the Australian Immigration Centre, is a, as a side side effect essentially of, of what's happened there economically because they had this huge boom for years and years their diet changed from uh, coconut fish uh, mango breadfruit locally grown locally sourced uh, foods to more a more western diet a lot more fat and sugar and salt and all the things we know that uh, are provoking an obesity epidemic in most uh, western countries which has I led to everything has to be imported Exactly, um, which has led to the state of affairs where Nauru is often described as being the fattest nation on earth. Uh, the average weight I've seen reported as being 220 pounds, um, 100 kilograms for those, those on metric. Uh, diabetes is at a rampant um i've seen 20 percent to 30 percent something like that it's 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 hugely prevalent I, I read an account an interview with a man by the name of paul and they were asking him you know why do you think you and and, and many on your island have have such uh, have such a high 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 fat level and he responded well i eat four meals per day i have a little lie down after each one and the interviewer mentioned that for this for this chap, a meal to him includes two large bowls of rice, uh, which is eight eight large bowls of rice in a day, and and rice being like a really uh, calorie intensive food. The life expectancy forty nine years for men, fifty five years for women. Um, some it's it's very obvious that the government, and and you mentioned this this earlier, guys, that uh, they they are a very very small government and they're struggling with a huge number of problems. But just from the little just, bit that I it's saw, it's just seventeen people. The parliament, well, yeah, in, in the parliament, exactly. Yeah, um, picked from a very small collection of people, and they seem to all be the ministers for various things and the heads of various yeah. commissions. There's not a lot of people here. This is this is like a small city, trying to be a country, with no resources. Like even fresh water used to have to be brought to the island. They now have a desalination plant, but like they, they used to bring fresh water in the phosphate ships in return for the phosphate. It was, you know, even fresh water is hard to come by. So just to, just to sum up, we've got uh, an island that's basically been at this point stripped of its natural resources. We've got massively high unemployment. We've got uh, a huge obesity problem. Probably, I would, I think we can easily argue the worst in the world, and no real industry to speak of apart from recognizing you know, nations that nobody else will recognize or housing uh, refugees from nearby, nearby developed countries. Uh, yep, that's, that's pretty much it. <sighs> that's Nauru. That's Nauru. Uh, yeah, I should stress, uh, we didn't really, none of us were really as aware. Uh, I think I, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that uh, we're all amateurs here. So none of us really knew exactly what we were getting into when we researched this place. But it really is hard for you to not feel sorry for this nation at this point. Uh, oh man, <laughs> it is. It's a bad city of affairs. And weirdly, tourism isn't a big industry in, in Nauru. Never has been, apparently. Yeah. No, because 
it's really hard to get to. Yeah, it's really really hard to get to. Uh, and what you get there is beaches you can't swim in because you'll cut yourself in the coral, a weird lunar landscape on the interior that is dangerous and has not been rehabilitated, the remnants of some Japanese artillery, and people who are apparently lovely, but not going anywhere. Yeah, literally and figuratively. I, I read a very good account uh, of uh, somebody who was blogging their, their trip to Nauru, and they decided to walk around the entire island. Uh, it, it took them, uh, because of the heat there, it, it's known as being extraordinarily hot because of the strip right mining. Right on the equator, it, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, well, almost, almost, almost on the equator, almost straddling the equator. That, but also the fact that the island was strip mined meant that there's a lot of bare stone, which soaks up the heat from the sun and then re-emits that. So actually rainfall they think has been reduced in Nauru in the last, say, uh, 50, 60, 70 years as a result of the mining and what's done to the geography of the island. Um, but anyway, she, she walked around the entire island and she, she made the point that you, you look off over one shoulder and it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, specific. There's palm trees and sands and, and these, these uh, uh, coral outcroppings and so on. And it's really, really beautiful. And then you look over your other shoulder into the island and it's it's strip mined and it's dry and it's hot, and there's there's people really struggling uh, struggling to make a, a valid existence there, and it's um, yeah it's 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 a very a place that should be pretty and happy uh, and should be doing well, but for for a great number of reasons many yeah many of which external they're they're not. Uh, however, powerlifting. Powerlifting, uh, we're going to sneak in at the end, I suppose, yeah, uh, to try and end on a little bit of a happy note. Well, it, literally all I have is that they're apparently quite good at weightlifting. Um, but even that comes with a dark lining. Uh, every cloud is a dark lining. They were so good at powerlifting that they won some competitions. They were meant to host the Pacific Games, was it? The... I believe it was. They were meant yeah, to host was, some international... Some kind of an international competition, yes about powerlifting and they couldn't afford to nor could they afford to send their competitors to compete in it when it was hosted somewhere else so they're one sport that they're they are world class at they struggle to compete at so as as you said at the top of the show luke this is a rags to riches to even more rags story of um it's kind of textbooks colonialism yeah, at its absolute uh, worst. Take all the good stuff and then give independence back and see what happens. So that's going to bring us to the end of our episode on Nauru. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Just a reminder that if you are listening, uh, the best way to support the show, if you like it, is to uh, leave us a review on iTunes. You can do that in the iTunes store. Uh, we've had a few reviews so far. One uh, that we particularly enjoyed from Jay Dunlap Media. Uh, says if you enjoy traveling the world plan on traveling the world or like to learn about obscure world history you need to subscribe to this podcast which i think sums us up pretty well uh if you want to find more from me you can find me at lukejkelly.com or at the lukejkelly uh mark where can people find you on the internet uh i'm on twitter at at mark boyle 86 uh, and i also have a blog on wordpress called the toner of leek leek as in the vegetable you can find me on twitter at at on which is A-N-B-E-I-R-N-E-A-C-H. Don't ask. That's us.
that's our episode for today. Thanks everybody for listening, uh, and we'll play you out with a uh, excerpt or a song from Leonardo the Musical, a portrait of love, which, if you remember, was one of the, was the musical that uh, contributed to the downfall of Nauru, described in one review as tasteless parody with irrelevant subplots. Uh, please tune in next time for something a little bit more uh, uplifting. The very heart and soul of me, the face that haunts me endlessly. She's the prize of every chase, the knot of strength within the lace. But when I need that face, she's never there for me to see. But she lives.